0: So we are in the book of Esther, and we are in chapter two. So uh, go ahead and navigate there if you haven't already. Esther chapter two. Like it or not, American Idol has been a phenomenon since it debuted in 2002. Man, that's a long time ago. Who knew it was around that long? The success of American Idol has been described as "quote unparalleled in broadcasting history." The series was also said by a rival TV executive to be, quote, the most impactful show in the history of television. I, I, it's not, but it gives you an idea of how people think. <laughs> it's become a recognized springboard for launching the career of many artists as bona fide stars. According to Billboard magazine, in its first 10 years, Idol has spawned 345 Billboard chart toppers and a platoon of pop idols. And don't forget that Jennifer Hudson Uh, who was a nobody before American Idol, ended up winning an Oscar. One estimate puts the total number of contestants at 100,000 each season, about 10,000 per city. Contestants go through at least three sets of cuts. The first is a brief audition with a few other contestants in front of selectors, which may include one of the show's producers. Only a few hundred of these make it past the preliminary round of auditions. Successful contestants then sing in front of producers where more are cut, Only then can they proceed to audition in front of the judges. Those selected by the judges are sent to Hollywood. Now, as we're introduced to Esther tonight, I want you to be thinking in terms of like an American Idol pageant in terms of the contest that she was involved with. Our story opened in chapter 1 in the palaces of Persia where King Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes, was throwing a feast. His queen, Vashti, had refused to come at his bidding. She was gonna be his big finale to this six-month-long feast. Uh, and, she, and she just said, no, we don't know why. And now we pick up the story some few months after those events, after Ahasuerus had decreed a law that she should no longer be queen and never appear before him again. And so verse one of chapter two, after these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided... He remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, into the women's quarters under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This thing pleased the king, and he did so. These young women were not rounded up in midnight raids against their will. They wanted to be queen. They auditioned to be queen. I'm sure there were preliminary rounds. You've gotta weed out people who think that they're beautiful. I mean, just like American Idol. I mean, you watch it to see who's lame. Who's lame? as much as who's, I mean, some of the people who think they have talent, it's incredible. And so, you know, they had to weed out some of these gals as well. There were hundreds or perhaps even thousands of young women who did not make the cut. Others did, and they were sent on to Shushan to chase this once-in-a-lifetime dream. Now, the Jewish historian Josephus says there were around 400 finalists. One of them was Esther, probably in her early 20s, Verse 5, in Shushan, the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem and the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. And so Mordecai was part of the Babylonian captivity. The Babylonians uh, were uh, the world-ruling empire that came in and destroyed Jerusalem and its temple around 586 BC under Nebuchadnezzar. And then they were themselves taken over by the Medo-Persian or the Persian Empire Uh, He had a younger cousin whose Hebrew name was Hadassah, whose parents were killed somehow, and uh, Mordecai raised Esther as he would his own daughter. A lot of emphasis is placed on Mordecai's genealogy. For one thing, it highlights the fact that he chose to keep his nationality hidden. It doesn't reveal uh, that he is a Jew until later in the book. While men like Ezra and Nehemiah were risking everything for the sake of following God by returning to a a run-down Jerusalem with no walls around it, uh, Mordecai was content to deny his heritage and continue to live in Persia. He was not really walking or living for the Lord. We established this last week. Uh, Commentators go to great lengths to try and prove that Esther and Mordecai were really secretly spiritual. Uh, at this time, and and they're just not. Let's just be honest about it. The Bible is always very honest about uh, its characters, and Mordecai and Esther are just not walking with the Lord. Verse 8, so it was when the king's command and decree were heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan, the citadel, under the custody of Hegai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Hegai, the custodian of the women. So let's be honest about Esther. When we first meet her, she is not walking with or living for the Lord. It's the last thing on her mind. She willingly entered the pageant as a candidate to become queen to Ahasuerus. There's no indication in the language of the story anywhere that she was forced against her will. When the writer says she was taken to the king's palace, it's not a word that connotes force or capture. It's the same word used to describe Mordecai's adoption of Esther. He took her in. And so she was taken of her own free will into this contest. Esther should not have been a participant in this pageant, but she was. The proper attitude for her to have would be to hope that nobody saw how beautiful she was and suggested that she be a part of this contest because it was all bad all the time. And so verse 9, now the young woman pleased him. And she obtained his favor, so he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. Seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. The Jews were under strict Old Testament dietary regulations which kept them separate from other people. Some of you have run into folks uh, that either are Christians or profess to be Christians who want to tell you that you too need to be under dietary regulations, that all of the Jewish dietary laws are still in place. Uh, and that's just not true. There's a, uh, there's a lot of reasons why not. Paul addresses this in the book of Colossians. He says, don't let anybody judge you according to uh, these types of regulations or Sabbath days or anything like that. You're, especially if you're a Gentile, you've never been under that and you're not under that. My favorite one is uh, when we were studying Ezekiel, remember, Uh, you you can go to these markets and get what's called Ezekiel bread. It's a brand, and it's pretty good. I'm not saying anything. I don't want to diss the brand, but you get Ezekiel bread. But you know the thing about Ezekiel, uh, when Ezekiel made his food, he was cooking it with dung, and it was because they didn't have real food because they were under siege, and so it always cracks me up that Christians say, oh, we need to eat like Ezekiel did. Yeah, no, even Ezekiel didn't want to eat like Ezekiel did. (laughs) It wasn't the Ezekiel diet. He didn't come out one day and say, hey, I got a diet plan that's going to really groove here. He was out there saying, in fact, the Lord wanted him to cook it in his own dung, and he said, "Ah, that's a little bit much, Lord. Can I use animal dung? Sure, you know, so I don't know what they're doing with that Ezekiel bread, but you are not under dietary laws. But Esther was. She willingly ignored these regulations, showing no regard for God's law. Compare her always to Daniel, who, an empire prior to this, about 100 years prior under Nebuchadnezzar, said, We're not going to eat the junk that you're putting in front of us. We're going to eat pulse, which is some kind of, you know, vegematic stuff. And um, because, you know, we're we're Jews and and we can't eat them, we're kosher. And, and God took care of them. He saw to it that they uh, just from, again, people say you need to eat like Daniel did. <laughs> no, you just need to avoid, you know, uh, salt, I guess, is all I would recommend. But anyway, uh, that's not even scriptural. And, uh, you know, but Esther could have said no to all of it. In fact, she didn't even need to be in this contest. And so there's nothing spiritual about what Esther's doing at this point in her life. And um, she gets all of these extra beauty treatments and maid servants. I mean, this is a, a worldly dream come true, I guess, but, but she's in a bad place. Uh, verse 10, Esther had not revealed her people or her family for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. Now, the commentators who try to defend Esther say, what was she supposed to do? She, she had to obey Mordecai. She was in submission to him as her surrogate father. And to that, we would say you have to obey God rather than man. There's no situation in the Old Testament where your father or your surrogate father could say, hey, these dietary laws, they don't apply anymore. Eat whatever you want, sleep with whoever you want, do whatever you want. I mean, this was her chance. Much older than Daniel, maybe five, seven, eight years older than Daniel was. uh, He was maybe 15 or 16. She's in her 20s. Uh, She's just not where she wants to be. Was not a crime to be a Jew in Persia. The Persians, Cyrus had signed a decree to allow the Jews to go back to their land. Nehemiah and Ezra had gone back. There was anti Semitism, obviously, there always is, but open persecution had not broken out. Esther concealed her identity in order to live comfortably and to get farther along in the world. She wouldn't have qualified for this. Uh, had she uh, initially said, well, I'm a Jew. All, and that's actually all she had to do was say, hey, I'm a Jew. She wouldn't have been chosen at all. She kept that hidden. They didn't have Google in those days. And so they, they, had, they didn't know what her genealogy was. And, and I'm guessing she was beautiful. And, and they you know, overlooked a lot of stuff in vetting her. Now, Mordecai's pacing is the activity of a man who's relying on human wisdom rather than God's will. God hadn't told him to do any of this, and so he's wondering how it's all going to turn out. Although God is definitely going to use both Mordecai and Esther, they're not in his will at this time. They're in what we'll call his providence, which I'll explain when we get to the big moment of Esther's life. Dr. J. Vernon McGee points out that Mordecai and Esther were in God's providence. I like his definition. He says, Providence is the way that God leads the man who will not be led. And so God has a plan. Certain things have to happen. For example, the Jews have to continue as a people in order for Jesus to come some centuries later. And so when his people don't want to be led, he is able to work through and in history to set up situations where his will is done without violating their free will. And it's, it's a fascinating study. Uh, in Providence. And so verse 12, each young woman's turn came to go into King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months preparation according to the regulations for the women. For thus were the days of their preparation apportioned: six months with oil of myrrh, six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. Thus prepared, each young woman went to the king and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. And so this is the spa vacation to die for. I mean, six months of beautification treatments, exercise, nutrition, cosmetics, massage, facials, hair and nails, fashion consulting, etiquette courses. It's kind of cute. One of the commentators points out that one of the words in here translates into uh, back into the original language fumigation, and so she's being fumigated with with perfumes, you know. But I mean, this is six months of being of going to the spa every. I don't know how many of you ladies. Uh, hopefully not too many of you men, but uh, you ladies have gone on spa weekends or something like this, but, and I don't wanna know. But this is six months of everyday spa treatments to ready yourself for a hasherus. And so verse 14, in the evening she went, and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women to the custody of Ryan Seacrest, the king's eunuch. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, Shazgaz. Man, if you saw Shazgaz, that was rough. Uh, who kept the concubine. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. The odds are bad here because you're talking about uh, 400 women. And so the odds, of being, the odds of getting a call back are not good. So this is a beauty pageant that included having sex with the only judge. This is how you, this is how you were judged. After you were ready... Uh, And you qualified and were prepared for six months, you went in and you had sex with the only judge. Esther knew this. This wasn't a last minute switch in the judging, where all of a sudden she read the fine print on the contract. And this was the plan all along. It goes without saying that God's law prohibited sex outside of marriage, let alone with a non Jewish king of Persia. Note too that if Esther was not chosen queen, which obviously this is a big possibility. She would instead become a member of the king's harem for the rest of her life. She'd be called upon from time to time, maybe, to go in and satisfy him sexually or to just hang around the harem. She wouldn't simply walk away and return to any kind of normal life. Mordecai and Esther were blowing it. I can't emphasize that enough. Living in Persia, they had become Persian. It's all an example to us of many things, but one thing is desensitization, It can be tough to remain spiritually sensitive in a culture like ours. Every day by multiple means you are bombarded with ideas and images that are designed to erode your views and your values. What can you do? Well, the only people in our story who were not being desensitized were those who had returned to Jerusalem when given the opportunity. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king, a previous king and had, he heard about his people and what they were going through, and uh, he shot off a quick prayer, and the next thing you know, he's on his way to Jerusalem. Their example to us is to stay connected with the things of God, be with the people of God, obey the word of God, just do normal Christian things. You know, the, the Christian life is not that hard in one sense, people want to know what, what do I need to do to be a Christian? The same things that you would have been told at a harvest crusade or a Billy Graham crusade or a Franklin Graham crusade if you went forward, the same four things never change. They tell you to read the Word of God, they tell you to pray, they tell you to fellowship with other Christians, and they tell you to share your faith with non Christians. Those are the, the four pillars, as you were, of, of the Christian life. And you just keep doing them for the, the entire walk with the Lord. You, you grow in them. And, and so uh, staying back, it wasn't a sin to stay back in Persia and some of the Jewish, uh, uh, you know, the Persian Jews sent support uh, because the, the Jerusalem Jews, they needed support. But Mordecai and Esther are not in that category. They're doing everything they can to break into Persian culture and to be in it at a very high level. Now, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised, and Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. And so this guy favored her, and, and he you know, knew what pleased Ahasuerus, and so he kind of you know, gave her an edge. But up to this point, it's all outward. Esther had no inward spiritual beauty to commend her, not yet. It's always the inner person God is concerned with, not the outer person. But all of this, I mean, all these treatments and all this, her natural beauty enhanced by, you know, this other stuff. I mean, compare Sarah in the Old Testament. I mean, she's, what, 90 years old, and Abraham's concerned that people are going to want to kill him for her. She must have been a babe. I mean, you know, come on. You don't read about any spa treatments. I mean, she's walking around the desert, you know, just picking up dust and stuff. And and, and she was beautiful. But Esther's naturally beautiful, but she's also, you know, getting into all the Persian beauty treatments and all this other stuff. It's all outward. The overwhelming emphasis in our culture is on what? Outward physical appearance. It's one of the key ways the world desensitizes believers. When was the first time you realized that they airbrush the pictures of your favorite celebrities? Do you know they do that? How many of you have never realized that? When you see Brad Pitt or you know, some of these gals or whatever, they don't look like that in real life. You ever seen a celebrity in real life? You probably have and didn't know it. Uh, or a lot of times, I mean, so, you know, a lot of times you say, that's That guy? He's like three feet tall. He looks a lot bigger in the movies. It's forced perspective. You know, I mean, it's crazy. And so uh, our culture is all on the outward, on the physical, and it desensitizes us. Our attention is constantly drawn to the physical, keeping our minds off the spiritual. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of uh, Tibet in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than any of the other women She obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so he set the royal crown upon her head, made her queen in place of Vashti. Now, don't get fooled by the word loved. The pagan king was incapable of the higher love that comes from God. He preferred Esther and loved her as much as you could in the flesh. There was no spiritual component to it. This is not a fairy tale romance that every girl desires. Vashti had once been in Esther's position. The way of the world tells us that Esther would one day be in Vashti's position, they would not live happily ever after, growing old together. Esther's husband would continue to sleep with his concubines. She would never know true love unless Ahasuerus converted to become a Jew. And that wasn't likely, especially since Esther was ashamed to even tell him about her heritage. And so this is not a fairy tale ending at all. It's, it's a horrible life. Verse 18, then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther. For all his officials and servants, and he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. It was almost five years from the time Esther became queen to the time she will reveal her true identity as a Jew. As queen, she ate and dressed and acted like a Persian, and that would include worshiping like a Persian. And so on top of all the other things that we would bust her out on, we also would say that she was an idolater. There's no sense in here that she would stop like the three friends of Daniel who refused to bow down to the image of Nebuchadnezzar. That just didn't happen with Esther. She was swept into this life and this lifestyle. She was happy and content with it until everything comes to a crisis and the Jews are going to be killed. Now, God considers himself the husband of the Jews. They were his wife. They are his wife. To marry this pagan king, to worship his pagan gods, was to conceal her vows, really, to her own God, was to commit spiritual adultery. When the world beckons to you, it's as a harlot seeking to woo you away from your bridegroom. It can be a worldly idea or ideal. It can be a worldly activity. It can be a worldly pursuit. These things may or may not be sinful to begin with, But they slowly begin to boil around you until you're cooked by them. And so we need to be careful out in the world. That's as simple as that. As Christians, we don't wanna make, I mean, there's certain things that you just shouldn't do. I I mean, they're just bam. And, And they're listed in the Bible. And then there's all those gray areas. We don't wanna be those Christians that make the lists. I have a list of things that I can and can't do and I think that should be your list too. But it isn't, and, and so we, you know, we have liberty in certain areas, but we don't want to become of the world. We have to recognize that the world is always drawing us, always pulling to us. I love that illustration we sometimes use of Ulysses wanting to listen to the sirens, that event from mythology where the sirens would sing to men on ships, and, and their song was so beautiful and so alluring that they would head towards it and they would crash on the rocks and kill themselves and Ulysses he's he's smart guy I mean there's no doubt that he's smart and so he has his guys tie him to the mast of the ship and then he says you guys all put wax in your ears and go right up to the sirens and don't listen you won't be able to hear me say anything and so he's a, he's stuck and he's listening to the siren song and he's yelling for his men to turn into it but he can't and and we think hey man guys <laughs> that's a smart guy but we as Christians, sometimes we, we have our own thing where we think, well, I'm, I'm tied to the mast, you know, or I'm holding on over here. I got Jesus right here. You know, he's, he's got me. And so I'm going to get a little bit closer to this situation, to this person, to this idea, to whatever it might be. I'm going to just kind of step into, I'm, I'm pretty mature, right? I've been a Christian for a long time. I mean, look at me. I'm mature. I would never go beyond this point. Well, you know, at this point, I, you know, and, and we, we just have to be careful. You just have to be really careful out there. Those lists can be helpful for you individually as long as you believe, you understand that they don't make you more spiritual. It doesn't make you more spiritual to say you're not gonna go to the movies. That's just between you and the Lord. Uh, if, if God wants you not to go to the movies, then don't. Do whatever he wants you to do. But... You know, lists can be helpful, but it's better to just set your inward affection on things above. It's better to have your heart consumed with the pursuit of God. Listen, if you're in love with your wife, guys, right, or gals, if you're in love with your husband, you're not looking for a fling, right? You're not looking to, for anybody to, to, you know, go out with. In fact, you're sensitive to weirdos coming up to you and hitting on you. And so, I mean, so the, 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 the answer isn't every day to go out the door and make a list of why you should stay with your husband. The answer is to really be in love. And that love cancels out all the danger that's around you. And that's the way we want to bring Jesus to you in grace and uh, uh, with that kind of strength. So in love with him, falling in love with him over and over again in that first love with him, anticipating his coming, Again, not, be, not so that he doesn't catch you doing anything wrong, but so that he, you're doing everything right the moment he comes for you. Amen.